Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on another episode of Market Journal. I'm Bryce Tuskett. Welcome in to the month of June. I do hope this new month finds you well. On today's edition of the show, we'll talk financial planning and bring you some interviews with Nebraska's elected officials in Washington, D.C. That's a look at what we've got coming up, but we begin today's episode with a look at an upcoming local event. Registration for the 2023 Youth Crop Scouting Competition is now open for FFA and 4-H members who are grades 5th through 12th. The competition, slated for August 2nd, will cover various agricultural topics from the basics of crop scouting to managing plant diseases. The competition will take place at the Eastern Nebraska Research, Extension and Education Center, also known as NREC, near Mead. The competition will include indoor and outdoor events and will award the top three teams with a cash prize. Yeah, so the Youth Crop Scouting Competition will be held on August 2nd and it basically provides youth um, anywhere from 5th through 12th grade the opportunity to learn how to do some crop scouting. So they'll actually get out into the fields out at the research center and look in corn, soybean fields and just try to um, figure out maybe what the disease is there, what um, stage of growth it is and just have that real world experience. So the youth work in teams, so anywhere between three to five youth will um, get together. Sometimes we have an agronomist that might um, be their coach, um, an FFA advisor, extension um, faculty member, and they just kind of go throughout learning um, the basic crop scouting principles. And then um, they'll come together as a team and they get to work as a team to uh, figure out what the, the problem might be. And then we also have kind of a fun um, electronic quiz testing their knowledge of basic um, IPM and other agronomy principles. So there are some cash prizes um, that are involved. The first place team will get $500, second place gets $250, and then the third place team gets $100. And we're able to do that because we have um, some gracious sponsors. We have Ward Laboratories, we have the Nebraska Soybean Board, um, the Nebraska Independent Crop Consultants, and then also um, UNL's uh, Doctor of Plant Health Programs. While the opportunity for teams to compete for cash prizes may be appealing for enough for some to join, the real prize of this competition is the education received and the opportunities to network with other students from around the state and the region. The top two teams also get advanced to the regional competition. So they'll compete um, in Nebraska this year. We're hosting it again, that'll be in September. And um, they'll compete against Iowa, um, Illinois, Indiana, um, Minnesota, and Missouri. So they have um, some other uh, opportunities to network with other kids from across the nation. If you or someone you know is eligible and might be interested in signing up for this year's Youth Crop Scouting Competition, registration is now open and will close on July 15th. As we mentioned earlier, cash prizes will be presented to the top three teams. Unfortunately, there is only enough room for 10 teams to participate in the competition, so registering as soon as possible is encouraged. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this competition and see how you can get involved, you can find all the details over on the website, cropwatch.unl.edu. Well, today on Market Journal, we're going to take you to the nation's capital as we ourselves were recently there. Nebraska has three representatives in the House. It's Congressman Adrian Smith, 
Don Bacon and Mike Flood. On the other side in the chamber, it's Senator Deb Fisher and Pete Ricketts representing the Cornhusker State. All five sat down with Market Journal last month to discuss the key issues that they're working on that have the impact, that have the potential, I should say, to impact Nebraska ag producers. Top of mind for each of them was the upcoming farm bill. It's a package of legislation passed roughly once every five years that has a big impact on production agriculture and on consumers. Covering programs ranging from crop insurance for farmers to healthy food access for low-income families, the Farm Bill sets the stage for our food and farm systems. So I'm anticipating that we're going to get out a good, strong bipartisan bill. It's Senator Stabenow's last two years in the Senate. I know she would like to have another good farm bill under her belt. And so we've, um, we're, we're working a lot. We're having a lot of hearings. Of course, last four years we've been working on it. Fisher says that crop insurance must be protected in the 2023 Farm Bill. That is a topic that Congressman Smith has said he's heard all about. I think we've got a great story to tell about crop insurance, how effective it is, and the opportunity to prevent the need for ad hoc disaster payments that get pretty messy in a process like this. So if we can avoid that with the, uh, that, that steadiness and, and the calm of, of crop insurance and that dependability, reliability, I, I think we're, we're much better off than taxpayers are too. That's the sentiment that new Congressman Mike Flood hears as well. He said producers around the state are concerned about possible restrictions that could be placed on crop insurance. And I had somebody in my office yesterday, actually from Hall County, and uh, he was telling me that, you know, we want the stability that we've come to expect and, and like from the, the farm bill, especially as it relates to crop insurance. We just want to keep all the other uh, issues from encroaching into what it does and, and changing some of the basic, uh, you know, expectations of the crop insurance program. Maintaining it as is, is a win. Congressman Bacon emphasized the importance of making minor tweaks to improve crop insurance, but he's also focused on animal health. You know, five years ago, African swine fever wasn't a thing, right? And so we were able to put five years ago, the foot and mouth vaccine, uh, vaccine database or the the vaccine bank, mm -hmm. so for so we could have be ready in case we had a foot and mouth disease outbreak, and that was my initiative. But I got that from our, our cattlemen and from our farm bureau that that was a priority. We were able to get that in the bill, but we were focused on foot and mouth. Now it's African swine fever, so I think you have to adjust with the times. Senator Fisher said she has multiple bills dealing with precision agriculture that she is hopeful will be adopted as part of this year's farm bill. She's also advocating for a bill that would deal with disaster response from USDA. Get those payments out sooner. So, so producers that have been adversely affected by um, a disaster that's out there, you don't have to wait two years to get get the help that, that you deserve to have. So that, that's just a little bit about uh, the specific things we're working on. We've got a bunch more too, and uh, just looking forward to getting it put together. I think in the Senate we should uh, be able, at least in committee, to get that done hopefully before the August recess. The newest member of the Nebraska delegation in D.C. said he recognizes the importance of the Farm Bill and its timely passage. We do it once every five years, so I'm confident that we'll be able to work to get that done as expeditiously as possible because, again, it really is important for a huge part of our economy to make sure that our producers are taken care of and the fact that we got to be able to continue to feed ourselves. The deadline that lawmakers in both the House and Senate are working with is September 30th. That's the expiration date of the 2018 Farm Bill.
Smith said that an extension of the current farm bill is something that could happen. Well, I want to be realistic here. It wouldn't surprise me if, if there's a, an extension involved. Uh, I hope that we can avoid that, certainly. Um, you know, getting it out of committee is, you know, just one, one of the steps, you know, that Senate's going to do their process, House will, you know, we will mm -hmm. do our process, um, and then make that, <laughs> and blend that together uh, uh, before it uh, would come back for another vote and, and go to President and sign into law. So it's a process that we shouldn't be afraid of. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think all too often contentious issues or, or even less than contentious issues, but important issues, though, that might be a little bit controversial. There's like, oh, let, let's, let's just save that for later. Well, we can't wait. We've got the expiration coming up. Uh, we, we need to really lean into this and get this done in a timely fashion. Beyond the Farm Bill, Nebraska lawmakers in Washington, D.C. have their eyes on a few other issues that could impact ag producers. For Senator Ricketts, it's foreign ownership of U.S. soil. Well, one of the things that we're very concerned about when it comes to those investments in farmland is the sensitivity of where those investments are. Where is somebody buying, like the People's Republic of China, where is somebody buying that land? Is it close to our sensitive military installations? And so we want to really you know, balance off people's private property rights with national security needs. It's an ongoing discussion right now, but I do think we have to address it. Finally, a number of lawmakers expressed concern about Mexico's plan to ban imports of genetically modified corn. The whole issue we see with uh, corn, and especially white corn, uh, with Mexico comes from their president, who has said that um, he's not going to allow the sale of American white corn or corn, yellow corn at this point too, into Mexico. And he says because of GMOs. We all know GMOs are safe. Mexico can't produce enough white corn that their population would demand. So this is um, uh, an odd situation to see it become so political and the, and the implications for future trade agreements, you know, really the, the horrible impact that would have. If, if the United States would allow the president of Mexico to say GMOs are not safe, that's the reason we're not going to import your corn anymore. Think of how that affects other trade agreements across the board, across the board. I'm happy to say in my conversations with Secretary Vilsack and Ambassador Tai, um, they have been very, very strong publicly as well as privately uh, that we cannot allow that to happen. That's a glimpse of some of the conversations we had while in Washington, D.C. as we keep an eye on potential legislation and some of the issues facing the ag industry. My thanks to our Marker Journal crew who had the chance to travel out to D.C. to capture those interviews. Up next, last week, U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary Jenny Lester Moffitt had the chance to visit the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to participate in a roundtable discussion about a new $25 million project that was announced earlier this month. My colleague Alex Makovica caught up with her after the event to get all the details. The University of Nebraska-Lincoln has been selected as one of the USDA's regional food center hubs, if you will. And joining us with details is Jenny Lester Moffitt, USDA Undersecretary. First of all, when we hear the word hub or center, we think this is like a physical brick and mortar. That's not what this is. Tell us more about what this will be. Yeah, so we identified 12 lead partners across the country. So we'll have 12 centers across the country 
who are really more about bringing people together, building partnership, and building local experts and local resources into each of their communities uh, so that farmers and food producers know how to navigate the food system and are able to advance new products into the marketplace. So you guys hosted a roundtable here yes. on the university's East Campus. Tell me about the, the takeaways you have from those conversations. Oh, I heard uh, from people who are working with urban farmers. I've heard from people who are working uh, with farmers out in rural communities. I heard from people who are working on making sure that the food that is getting to schools and hospitals is healthy. And that is the beautiful diversity of the food system, is that there is so many different players in the food systems. We have farmers who play the critical role of growing the food. And then there are many links in the food supply chain that can be complicated for a farmer to navigate, but farmers are really interested in doing that. And so to be able to have University of Nebraska-Lincoln along with all of the partners that they've established in the Heartland to establish this Heartland Regional Food Business Center is gonna be able to provide a resource for farmers to navigate the food system and to bring new value to their farm so that they'll continue to prosper. That's a great insight as to what it's gonna look like, the benefits for producers. What about on the consumer side? What does that look like? Oh, absolutely. So consumers who will be able to have access to some of that product that is grown here in Nebraska. So they'll be able to go to their grocery store or they'll be able to go to local restaurants. They'll be able to, even at the hospitals and at schools, uh, consumers will be able to have more produce and food and meat that is grown here in Nebraska and their, their own food system. So this is not the only regional food system that's been established, right? It's Correct. kind of a movement across the country. Tell me more it about is. that. Yeah, so there's 12 regional food business centers across the country, and they span from, there's an island and remote areas regional food business center to, of course, the heartland, to a Delta regional food business center. And we asked the regions to identify, we asked, we put a call out for applications, and we said, figure out what, your, what region makes the most sense how, what partnerships come together, present that to us and then we'll select from there. And so University of Nebraska-Lincoln was, was selected to be the region for this five state area um, in the heartland that includes Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. So why Nebraska? Why did that stand out to the USDA? As we were looking at the applications, what was clear to us is many of the criteria we wanted. We wanted strong partnerships. We wanted organizations that had the capacity to do and manage these, these um, big grants and administer grants too, because part of these is they're gonna be administering what we call business builder grants. So they're gonna be administering grants up to $100,000 for producers to uh, be able to buy equipment that they need to get their product to market. Um, so be able to administer that, um, that they're established and they're working in the food system already. They're known entities and they've partnered with trusted organizations that are trusted by different groups of farmers, right? How my dad gets his information is very different than the neighbor down the road um, and the farm down the road. And I would imagine the same is here in Nebraska. So different people are getting information and going to different resources. And so that is also key, key to this. A lot of good things to come. Undersecretary, what did we miss that's important to mention? Oh gosh, I mean, I think this is exciting. We are working at USDA to transform this food system. We're working at USDA to create 
more opportunities for farmers and ranchers, more opportunities for communities in rural America to be able to prosper and to drive more jobs into rural America. And this is really about building our economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this new facility and how it has the potential to impact the region, we've included a link along with this story. You can find that now on the Market Journal website. Expanded processing and new dairy products continues to be the holy grail for Nebraska's dairy industry. It appears that the industry is on the cusp of some major expansion in the state as processors have announced expansions and new dairy products are hitting the market. You can learn all about the state of the Nebraska dairy industry and what lies ahead for the dairy farmers in the June issue of the Nebraska Farmer. What well, is now time where we check in with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Bill, it's a new month with many of the same challenges are facing us that we addressed last month. So I guess what do you have in store for us in the week ahead when it comes to weather? Well, exactly. Uh, the next month here that we're in in June, going to be very much like May. If you liked what was coming then, you're going to like what's coming uh, here in June. Latest drought monitor, not much change. We've still seen vast improvement in the west. Expansion here in the east of the exceptional drought conditions. And that's because it's really been a case of the haves and have-nots. Take a look at what happened here in the month of May. 51 hundredths of an inch of precip in Lincoln. We've had more in the last uh, couple of days than we had in the whole month of May. 17 hundredths in Omaha, just barely over an inch uh, from Norfolk down through Hastings. But take a look at the other side of the state. 733 in Scottsbluff, 1094 in uh, McCook. That is one of the, uh, that's the highest total ever in McCook for the month of May. Similar in North Platte at 755, 909 in Imperial for the year now. McCook is seven and a half inches above normal. You see above normal precip on the west and well below normal. It's like six and a half inches below normal in Lincoln. What do we have coming this week? It's more of the same. It's a lot of rain, uh, especially in the western half of the state. Every afternoon and evening, going to see showers and thunderstorms. That system really not moving a whole lot, bringing us daily chances of showers and storms in the west almost every single day this week. I uh, can't rule out much changes at all and staying mostly dry in the east. There's a few days we'll see some showers and thunderstorms, especially later on into the week. But until then, uh, the west, the rich get richer, I guess, and the uh, poor stay poor uh, in the eastern part of the state. Temperatures are going to be cool in the west with all that rain. Warmer in the east, that heat's going to expand uh, as we start out early in the week. Again, much warmer in the east than in the west, and that continues all the way through next week. Uh, so not a whole lot of change there as far as what's coming our way. And precip definitely heavier in the west, lighter amounts in eastern portions of Nebraska. Take a look at the 8 to 14 day outlook, below normal temperatures and above normal precip in the western two-thirds as we send that out 30 days, kind of a mix, some cooler and warmer temperatures in Nebraska depending on where you're at. And generally the west and southwest looking at above normal precip so really the rest of this month, uh, not a whole lot of changes. June looks very similar to what May price. Alrighty, thank you very much for that update, Bill. 
Finally today, what are some of the characteristics of a good farm manager? That's a big question. Some say success results from a conglomeration of several factors, including a good combination of strategic planning and decision-making abilities. We recently spoke with farm and ranch management specialist Jay Parsons to discuss the value specifically of strategic planning for farmers and ranchers. And Jay, you talk about in this article that strategic planning can be both a curse and a cure. We'll talk more about what you mean by that and some of the research you've done on this topic. But first, let's define what you mean by strategic planning in this context. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of different strategic planning processes out there. Um, the similarities with them is they, people generally split them up into three different stages. Uh, the first stage is what we call a strategic stage, which is basically saying, where, where am I at right now? What kind of resources do I have? And what's my current situation? And then where do I want to go? Where do I want to uh, get to in the next 5, 10, 15 years or so? Uh, the second stage would be the tactical stage, where you explore different ways to, to complete that process, to go from here to there. And then the third stage would be the operational stage, which you actually implement what it is that you decide to do it. So, so the big thing that distinguishes strategic planning from, say, other planning is just this idea that I'm thinking more long-term and I'm being strategic on, on reaching those long-term goals and outcomes that I'm looking for. Well, let's zero in on this topic for our viewers today, our farmers and ranchers out there uh, joining us on Market Journal. What would you say the value of strategic planning is for them? Well, that's a good question because I've been helping you know educate producers on strategic planning for 20 <laughs> years at least, and uh, and we always say, hey, you know, people who do this are more successful. But uh, what I found out when I started looking into it, because somebody asked that question because they wanted a number, right? Hmm. And uh, there's not a lot of studies that actually quantify the value. The one thing I will say is is that people who know where they want to go tend to be uh, more likely to get there, right? Um, you know, that they've actually done some conscientious planning of what success looks like, and they tend to do things that uh, um, lead to that more often. Uh, but quantifying is a little bit more tricky and a, and a little bit more ambiguous right now. You've been uh, studying this topic, obviously, and implementing some of these things for more than 20 years. Have, I guess if you put a rough estimate out there, how many producers are, are trying to think long-term about strategic planning today? Any idea on that? Well, any planning topic with ag producers, with any business owners, really, and people in life, it's, it's kind of a tricky one from a standpoint that a lot of people claim to be doing it, but if, if you actually look for visible evidence, it's sometimes hard to come by because hmm. they don't tend to write some of these things down or take the time to write them down and, and articulate them clearly. Um, so I, if I'm just going to throw rough numbers out there, I would say, you know, about 40% of producers out there are doing some sort of strategic planning in some sort of fashion that you could ask them some questions and become relatively comfortable that they're trying to do it in, in a, you know, like I said, a significant fashion. But if you actually went out and tried to look for things written down, I'm guessing it's somewhere, you know, 3% maybe that have it written down. Um, you know, there's a few larger operations, especially multifamily operations or ones that have, say, uh, investors involved, that they actually do have a written business plan that serves as a strategic plan. And, uh, but that, that's definitely a minority of them. Well, speaking of writing things down, you went on a mission to look at some research into this area. You found some different research projects, mainly outside the U.S. What did you find? Well, that's interesting because I thought I would find something in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And everything I found, uh, like you said, was, was pretty much outside that's been documented. Um, so I'm a big fan of Peter Nuthall. He's a uh, soon to be retired if he's not already a uh, farm management specialist in New Zealand. And he's done some work on it. And, and documented some different things there. And his primary thrust is looking at what makes a good farm manager. So it's not necessarily strategic planning as the, the topic focus, 
but he's looked at those that have that have done things like written down goals and objectives, things that uh, you know they do to to take into account what we might call just uh, strategic planning activities type of stuff. So he's looked at some of those things, and um, one of the things that I found in one of his studies that was done about uh, 15, 20 years ago was that was striking to me was that he he found that those that did have goals and objectives written down were actually less likely to adjust what they were doing, hmm. and we we would call that a bias. Uh, basically a sunk cost bias that people would have. So if you invest a lot of time and energy into putting together a plan, you're kind of reluctant to move away from that because you put all that time into it. So that was kind of striking that he actually documented that uh, in one of, one of the studies that he did. So anyway, that, I thought that was interesting. And then he had another one where he surveyed him and, and just asked him a series of questions about the attributes, good attributes of a manager. And in there was a couple of them uh, that pertain specifically to strategic planning, like do you have goals and objectives, how important is that? And then um, I think the other one um, basically uh, had to do with written plans and planning activities. But both those were kind of mid-pack. Out of 15 that he ranked, they were very mid-pack. Hmm. Um, and the producers tend to put more emphasis on basically the ability to react to current information and make good decisions. Um, so, that, so I looked at that quite a bit. There were some other studies in UK um, and the UK studies looked a lot at uh, basically people's, um, you know, how active they were and uh, having goals and objectives, whether they had them written down or not. Uh, Canadian study looked at a similar thing. And, uh, you know, in a nutshell, about two thirds of people claim, foreign producers claim that they had goals and objectives clearly in their mind. But uh, depending on the study, it was 15 to 25% actually said they had something written down. <laughs> to that effect. So anyway, so it's kind of interesting seeing yeah. the different things that are out there. Obviously, as ag producers, you're always thinking about the short term, what are the markets doing, you know, what's happening with the weather, but strategic planning really looking beyond that and making some of these long-term goals. If somebody's watching today and says, yes, that's that's all good, how do I get started though? What's your advice? Well, the first thing is just to be, uh, to get started in some fashion, okay? And to realize that when you're doing, and I, I work at a university, right? And, you know, we do five-year strategic plans all the time for different areas. And, you know, it's always, it's not unique to ag that people are, uh, I wouldn't say they're frustrated by it, but sometimes they always question if it's worth the time and if it's going to get implemented because things change. And in ag, we have a lot of risk. And obviously, that's a deterrent to sit down and map out this plan. And then, th you know, weather doesn't turn out, markets turn different, family situation might go different. They say, well, man, I invested all that time in that. I don't know if it's really worth it. But the thing is, is to look at it as a living document, right? So you get started on saying, hey, what's important to me? You articulate it and realize that that's not going to be stable over time as in never changed. Um, it shouldn't change dramatically. Like you shouldn't say at one point family is important to me and the next point it's not. But, but certainly the family members involved and things that you might want to accomplish uh, or uh, some of the details are going to change over time. So realize it's a living document and you just need to keep it up to date. So that's one of the, the main things. Understand that all plans don't work out the devs and make the plan useless. It gives you a better starting point to adapting that plan to the new conditions and, uh, and making things better. Some additional insights from Jay on this topic can be found over on the website, cropwatch.unl.edu. Well, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Market Journal. As a reminder, you can now watch the show on Acres TV. Simply download the Acres TV on your smartphone or add the channel to your Roku or Fire TV device. We do hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu.
You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.